The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to make sure that we are filled with the Spirit and fellowship with the Lord. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer so that if you need to, you can avail yourself of that principle. And then we will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you we have this privilege and opportunity to worship you. Father, we do that through the teaching of your word because we know that you have revealed yourself to us in an infallible, inerrant scripture that teaches us everything we need to know about life and godliness. And Father, your word teaches us how to be saved and how to have a relationship with you and that even though we often fail and often sin after salvation, that the solution to those Post-salvation sins are that it has been taken care of. Everyone has been taken care of at the cross. And we simply admit, acknowledge our sins to you. And we have uh, fellowship with you. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit to continue our spiritual growth. Now, Father, we know that it is through your word, under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, that we advance. So we pray now as we study your word, we would be uh, challenged by the things that we study and that we might be able to Uh, further understand your work in salvation and all that you have done for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We continue our study of how to maintain and recover fellowship with the Lord for spiritual advance, the theme of 1 John. We have seen that John's particular style is such that he announces his his um, purpose for a particular section of the epistle at the end of that section. So that in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I am writing these things to you that you might not sin. That's the thrust of this, first, this section from 1.5 down through 2.2. He's addressing the fact that as believers, we do sin. We continue to sin even after salvation. In fact, we may even sin in ways after salvation that we, never occurred to us before salvation. 
Now, of course, that's going to apply to those of you who were saved at a tender age, as I was. When you're six years old, you're not exactly a bastion of heinous sins yet. And so, of course, almost any sin you commit after that is going to be greater than what you committed beforehand. But some of you were not saved until you were in your 20s. And all of a sudden, after salvation sometimes, we discover entire realms of temptation that never even occurred to us afterwards simply because now we are in the intensified angelic conflict and we have become a, uh, in the Lord's royal family and we have become targets for satanic attack. As a result, sometimes there are folks who say, man, once I got saved, then it, all of a sudden I had opportunities and sins and I never even thought about before I was saved. We continue to sin because we have a sin nature. It does not diminish. It does not decrease at all with salvation. What happens at salvation is that the uh, power of the sin nature is broken. It is a tyrant prior to salvation. We are born enslaved to the sin nature, and that slavery is broken at salvation. Nevertheless, we now the, the issue now becomes our volition. Are we going to resubmit ourselves to the... Uh, sin nature, or are we going to continue to walk by the Spirit? It's a volitional issue, and that's what Paul gets at in Romans chapter 6. Now, John is talking about these same basic themes, but he's talking about the importance of walking in the light, the importance of staying in fellowship with the Lord for spiritual growth, and he gives us in chapter 1, verse 9, the means of recovery from post-salvation sins, that is, through confession, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to the Lord. Now, this is a function of our priesthood. It's important to distinguish between our priesthood and our spiritual life. Priesthood functions have to do with responsibilities that every believer has that we that we get at the moment of salvation. It comes with being a member of the royal family of God and being a royal priest in the family of God. Every believer in the church age is a priest. And with that priesthood comes certain responsibilities. Responsibilities for witnessing. Responsibilities for prayer. Responsibilities for giving. And, of course, confession is part of that priestly responsibility. As prayer is part of that responsibility, so too is confession because we know from Psalm 116, or excuse me, Psalm 68, that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So that we can't engage in viable prayer with God unless we are in fellowship with Him. And if there is sin in our life, then that fellowship has been broken. So that is why confession then is a part of our priesthood. Now this is important to understand because you always have in the Scriptures, and we're going to see some of it a little more today, throughout the Scriptures there is an emphasis on priesthood, on the presence of God on earth, which is usually the tabernacle or temple setting, and the necessity of cleansing from sin in that environment. I introduced this on Wednesday night, the idea that the issue is not so much confession, that's a means to an end, the issue is cleansing. There are many questions raised sometimes by, by folks who don't understand the teaching of confession, and one that I have heard over the years is, well, if that's so important, why is it that 1 John 1, 9 is the only passage that mentions confession? 
And sometimes we've emphasized that so much because that's the means to the end that we've forgotten what the end is. And the end is cleansing. And when all of a sudden you shift to the key word of cleansing, then the New Testament sort of opens up and we find a number of places in the Scripture that emphasize the importance of cleansing or the operation of cleansing from sin before we take in the Word, before we live the spiritual life. Passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, which talk about taking out the old leaven, removing the leaven, uh, cleansing there because Christ is already our Passover, therefore remove the old leaven. And that has to do with the... Uh, it pictures the whole ceremony of Passover that the Jewish families would go through the whole house and do a detailed search for any leaven that was in the house because that's a symbol of sin. And they would sweep it up, remove it, take it outside, uh, burn it. And that's a sign that the house is now cleansed and ready for a celebration of Passover. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about examining ourselves before the Lord's table. James talks about uh, cleansing your hands, you sinners, and, and being and washed. Uh, first, and James 1, 18 to 20 talks about the fact that first of, before we can receive the word implanted, we have to put off the sin, put off sin. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2 talks about, uh, desiring the sincere milk of the word, but verse 1 says that first of all you have to put off, apatithemi, same word you have in James 1, 18, you have to put off sin. And all of that's a picture of their, of the necessity of cleansing. In the Old Testament, it's exemplified by the fact that before the priest went into the temple on uh, the, or the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies, he had to wash his hands and his feet. He had to give a guilt offering or a sin offering before he went in all pictured cleansing. And this thing even holds true in the Millennial Kingdom. Millennial Kingdom, there's going to be a restoration of animal sacrifices. We studied this on Wednesday night. It's covered in Ezekiel uh, chapters 40 through 48, all of the uh, descriptions of the Millennial Temple and the rituals in the Millennial Temple. Now, those aren't Levitical sacrifices. Some people get confused and say, well, Christ has come. He's paid the price. He died on the cross for our sins. Well, that's true. None of the sacrifices that are, rest- that are part of the uh, restored Millennial Temple have to do with atonement. They are pictures, though, of cleansing, same as they were, or these particular types of sacrifices were in the, in the Old Testament under the Levitical system. And the priests serving in the Millennial Temple still have sin natures. And they have to go through ceremonial cleansing before they go into the temple. So there are sacrifices, then it's the same principle. This isn't legalism. Legalism is saying you have to do certain things in order to gain God's approval and blessing. These are simple procedures God provides to teach certain things about the fact that He is holy and that God is perfectly righteous and He can have nothing to do with sin. And so to go into His presence, there has to be a cleansing of any sin so that fellowship can be maintained. And of course, in the church age, the temple is located in each and every pew in the, in the local church where there is a believer because our body is the temple. It is made with, with uh, living stones. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Each individual believer's body is made a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so as part of our function of our priesthood in relationship to the temple indwelling of the Holy Spirit, 
there has to be cleansing in order for us to be able to function in that priesthood in relationship to our spiritual growth and in relationship to the Lord. So we have to make those distinctions between priesthood and spiritual growth. And priesthood emphasizes our responsibilities that we all have as believers. And spiritual growth has to do with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives as He produces growth. And whenever we sin, it stifles, it squelches, it quenches the, Holy, the ministry of the Holy Spirit towards producing that growth. And so we have to confess our sins in order to get back in fellowship. Now, that's the, that's the outline of that's the, what's covered in verse 9. And chapter 2, 1 and 2 describes what's happening on the, in the heavenly scene. We looked at verse 1 last time. My little children, I am writing these things to you, purpose clause, that you might not sin. That's commit acts of sin. It's not a present tense verb, which would be continuous sinning, but it's a, any act of sin that you might not sin. But, of course, John is a realist. He knows we all have sin natures and we're going to sin, maybe even while we're reading the letter. Somebody might start reacting to it and getting angry. So he understands we sin. If anyone sins, what's the solution? We have an advocate with the Father. This is the flip side of what our responsibility in verse 9 is to admit our sins. And what happens in heaven is that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. So Satan, we saw last time, continually goes about accusing us. They're not worthy of grace. They're rotten sinners. They're disobedient. Look how sinful they are. And we looked at Zechariah 3, 1 through 3, and saw the example from the Old Testament related to Joshua the high priest and how the, the picture there was that Jesus Christ has him take off his old robes, which are dirty, symbolizing sin, and clothing him with new robes, indicating the fact that we are washed clean at confession. And there we see that the, the picture of the Lord serving as our advocate and defense attorney, because Satan cannot have a legal ground for accusing us because Christ says he has paid the penalty. And that is the second part of the clause. See, verse 1 emphasizes who Jesus Christ is now in His present session in heaven as our advocate. And He is in that position because of His character. He is Jesus Christ the righteous. That emphasizes His impeccability. And then John goes on to expand this in verse 2. He says, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. So talking, he emphasizes the fact that it is Jesus Christ himself. The use of the reflexive pronoun there is to give emphasis to the person of Jesus Christ. That it is he who is the propitiation for our sins. Not just his work on the cross, but it is Christ himself who is the propitiation. He was the propitiatory sacrifice. So this introduces... Uh, couple of extremely crucial doctrines to understand the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the first is the doctrine of propitiation. The doctrine of propitiation, not a word that everyone uses or that you hear every day, but once you learn it, you can enjoy using it and showing off what you learn. See, you may not learn any doctrine when you're here, but at least you'll learn a few vocabulary words. Definition of propitiation. It's that aspect of the saving work of God 
through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of mankind. Satisfaction is the key word. God's holiness is satisfied. His holiness is comprised of two attributes, his righteousness and his justice. Remember, the righteousness of God is the standard of God's character. The justice of God, the justice of God is the application of that standard toward his creatures. Therefore, what the righteousness of God demands, this what the standard demands, the justice of God must supply. So when the righteousness of God rejects something, the justice of God must condemn it. If we fall short of God's righteous standard, then we fall under judicial condemnation. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God can then bless. But you see, the righteousness of God can only approve perfect righteousness. Isaiah 65 tells us that all our righteousnesses, not all our unrighteousness, not all our bad deeds, all our righteousnesses, all of our works are as filthy rags. That means you add up all the good deeds in your life, all the wonderful things that you've done, all of your, the times when you did the right thing, even though you knew you, knew you didn't, really didn't want to, all of the times that you uh, uh, helped the little old lady across the street or went to church when you didn't have to or did what your parents wanted you to do when you really wanted to do something else or whatever it was, every time in life that you did good things, that doesn't count. God says all those good things are filthy rags. And the Hebrew indicates is an extremely offensive image. Probably the best thing I could communicate today is, you know, when you go to the doctor and they have those little, bio, what is it, the biochemical uh, waste there where they put bandages and they put, and if you're down in surgery where they put all of the, uh, everything that's been immersed in blood and in, all of those horrible infectious bandages loaded with, with just uh, pus and everything. You take all of that, take it, see, I wanted to wake you up this morning. <laughs> You take all that and you go down into, and into the dumpster and you put all those filthy, rotten, infected bandages together and you just let it sit there for a couple of weeks and really rot. And God says that your good deeds aren't quite that attractive. And I'm not even coming close to what the original Hebrew seems to indicate. So, God is not impressed with our good deeds. Good deeds are not the issue. The issue is Jesus Christ. But you see, because of his righteous standard, God has to figure out some way so that we can gain his approval. What the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God can then bless. So the issue in salvation is then how can the righteousness and justice of God be satisfied? How can God's standard of absolute perfection be satisfied so that his justice in turn can bless us. And that is what propitiation is all about. Propitiation focuses on the Godward side of salvation. See, most of the other elements that separate us from God, such as spiritual death, that's a problem that we have. We're separated from God. We are not born again. We need to be regenerated. We are under uh, the condemnation of, of Adam because of and we have imputed, uh, imputed to us Adam's original sin. All of that has to do with who we are. 
But in propitiation, the focus is on who God is. That the problem is satisfying the righteous standard of God. This is done through the work of Christ on the cross. And it's seen clearly in two other verse, two verses. Let me skip past that. Two verses, Romans 3.25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is, as a satisfaction in His blood. That should be means there, translated instrument, instrumentally, as a propitiation by means of His blood. And we've studied the blood of Christ that it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. It's not talking about the literal, physical, plasma, hemoglobin, red and white corpuscles of the Lord Jesus Christ. But blood is a, the shedding of blood is a metaphor used throughout Scripture to emphasize death. We go back to the, one of the first times the phrase is used in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant, where it says, when if man blood is shed by man, then man shall shed that man's blood. It's a basis for capital punishment. And there it's talking about murder, and it uses the phrase shedding of blood to refer to murder. Now, murder, of course, can be committed any number of ways without spilling or shedding blood. There can be strangulation, there can be poisoning, there can be electrocution. There might be a number of different ways. If you put your mind to it, you could come up with killing somebody where they don't shed a single drop of blood. But it's an image a violent death. And so when it talks about by his blood, it's talking about his substitutionary death on the cross. Sins were paid for between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when the sins of the world were poured out or imputed to Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Now, he did not personally sin. He did not become personally culpable so that he is still sinless. But legally, God credits to his account every single one of our sins so that uh, it is by his blood, by his death, that God is satisfied and that is applied then to us through faith. Verse Romans 3.25 goes on to say, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, to demonstrate the righteous standard of God that it had to be met. God can't just say, oh, well, you're so nice and you're so sweet and you really tried hard, you're, you're, you're sincere, you're sincerely wrong, but you're sincere. I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll just let you into heaven. No, he has to demonstrate his absolute righteous standard, and that's what was done at the cross. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That refers to those from creation to the cross, because God, in his grace, over, didn't really overlook them, but he set them aside until they were actually paid for when Christ came. Hebrews 2.17 is a second key verse on propitiation. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That refers to the fact that Christ had to be true humanity. He had to enter into human history. He was born of a virgin, virgin conception and virgin birth, so that he might um, be able to die as our substitute. If he wasn't true humanity, full humanity, then he could not have died as our substitute. So... He had to be like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus Christ is the one who propitiates God. Now, the key words that we have to look through here are, first of all, in the Greek, uh, hilasmas. Hilasmas is a transliteration I mean, it's a translation. It means 
propitiation or satisfaction, and it translates the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, kaporeth, from the verb kafar, which means to atone. Now, kaporeth is a noun, and it's a fascinating noun because it refers to a specific location, and that is the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was a box. That's what Ark means. It's a box. You know, when you see pictures of Noah's Ark, uh, they always look like more like a ship than they do a barge. And, but it was called an Ark because it was in the shape of a box. And the Ark of the Covenant was a box made of acacia wood that was then overlaid with pure gold, and it had a lid that fitted on top. And on top of that lid, there were two gold cherubim placed, and they looked down to the center point on the lid, and that place was called the mercy seat because that was where the high priest on the Day of Atonement brought the uh, blood to indicate the sacrifice done for the nation Israel. This is seen in, in Exodus 25:17, gives us a description of the mercy seat. This is the place of propitiation. Verse 17 of Exodus 25 reads, And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. And the word for mercy seat is kaphoreth, translated uh, hilasmos in the Greek of the Septuagint. You will make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. And you shall make two cherubim, the I-M is the plural ending in Hebrew, so it really should be translated, you shall make two cherubs of gold, make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat, and make one cherub at one end and one cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. And the cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I shall give you. Now, inside the ark were three objects. The Ten Commandments, showing that they had broken God's standard. The uh, rod of Aaron, which had budded. And the purpose for that was that the Israelites had rebelled against the Aaronic priesthood, and and God was showing that Aaron was his chosen one because he took the staffs from all those who wanted to take his place, and they laid him out overnight. The next morning, his staff, and you know, a staff is made of a piece of dead wood. Overnight, that staff had budded, had sprouted overnight to indicate God's approval of of, uh, Aaron. So Aaron's rod that budded showed their, their rejection. The people had rejected God's provision of a priesthood. And then manna was kept in there because they, God had provided physical sustenance for them, but they had rejected that and rebelled against that because they wanted tastier food. They wanted to have a more uh, variety in their diet. They wanted to go back to the uh, garlics and leeks of Egypt, which is something that would appeal to most of us, I think, rather than just eating a little uh, bread, even though it was tasty. Some people want to translate it, cori- that it tastes- translate the man as coriander seed. Now, I don't know about most of you, but I just cannot stand the taste of coriander, so I would have had a difficult time. I would have probably been one of those wanting to go back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt just to have a little more food. But that was placed in the box to indicate all the sins of Israel, the sinfulness, 
And over the top of that is the mercy seat indicating that God is going to deal with the sin and cover the sin of Israel. And here is a picture of the ark. It would be all of one place. And then it is this area right here between the cherubs that was the mercy seat. Inside the box you have the three articles indicating Israel's sinfulness. And the high priest would bring into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. And incidentally, the Hebrew word translated atonement is kafar, from which we get kafarit, meaning mercy seat. They placed the bowl of blood from the sacrifice of the lamb without spot or blemish onto the mercy seat. And then, as it were, the cherubs, and cherubs are an order of angels that are always associated with the holiness of God. In every passage, the cherubs are mentioned. It's an emphasis there on the holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God. So the two cherubs represent His holiness, His righteousness and His justice. And they look down upon the shed blood. And the picture there is that the holiness and righteousness of God are satisfied by the sacrifice. And the sacrifice then has covered and paid the price for the sins, and that's inside the box. So it's a tremendous um, visual teaching us about what would happen at the cross, that Jesus Christ went to the cross as the Lamb of God. John the Baptist saw him coming and announced him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that had direct uh, application to the Lamb without spot or blemish in the sacrificial system of the Levitical offerings. So the high priest brings in the blood, which is a picture of Christ's physical death, which in turn is a picture of his spiritual substitutionary death on the cross, and that covered our sins. He paid the penalty for our sins. So therefore, we can say that propitiation then is related to the work of Christ on the cross. Point number one, just in case you missed something there, point number one was the definition that aspect of the saving work of God through the substitutionary spiritual death of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby the justice and righteousness of God are satisfied concerning the sins of mankind. Romans 3.25 and Hebrews 2.17. Second point was that propitiation was communicated to Israel through the sacrificial blood sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the third point is that propitiation is then related to the work of Christ on the cross. The death of Christ covered or paid for our sins, satisfying the righteousness and justice of God. Referencing Leviticus 16, 13 through 16. Point number four. Propitiation is then appropriated to the believer by faith in Christ and is the basis for the imputation of divine righteousness. It is the basis for the imputation of divine righteousness. Propitiation occurred at the cross. God's righteousness and justice were actually satisfied on the cross for every single believer. So that the barrier can be is removed at the cross. But there's a problem. Man has three problems. I'm gradually expanding this doctrine. Who knows how many we'll end up with. Man has three problems, at least, that keep him out of heaven. Problem number one is sin and the sin penalty, which means that there has to be a death 
for that sin. The second thing that separates man from God is that he has he is minus life. He does not have the life of God. He is minus life. The third problem that he has is he is minus righteousness. Now, when Jesus Christ died on the cross as our substitute, he paid the sin penalty. All our works of righteousness, all our righteousnesses are poured out on him so that Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that on the cross, Jesus is, remains perfectly righteous, but all of man's, minus our, all of our sins, are poured out on Him on the cross. That takes care of the sin penalty. But the problem is, we still lack righteousness. Somehow we have to receive plus R. So God, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's called imputation. So now we possess perfect righteousness so that when God's righteousness looks at us, He approves of us. He sees His righteousness in us and that meets His approval. Then the justice of God is then free to bless us And so God declares us to be just, that's justification by faith alone, and then He imputes to us minus, I mean, He imputes to us eternal life, His very own life, so that by faith alone in Christ alone we receive the imputation of plus R, perfect righteousness, and we receive the imputation of His eternal life. The result is that now we can be saved, and we can spend eternity in heaven. But because Christ paid the penalty for sin, sin is no longer the issue, and all sins have been paid for. Now, that's important to understand the next doctrine that we're going to come to, which is unlimited atonement. But before we get there, we have to wrap up the doctrine of propitiation. Point four, propitiation is appropriated by faith in Christ. It is real, it has been accomplished in the cross, but we have to make it ours by putting our faith alone in Christ alone. And then that becomes the basis for the imputation of plus R. Point number five, propitiation resolves the problem of the demands of God's righteousness and justice. He is always uh, propitiated so that those demands are always met for all time and eternity Therefore, our sin, even post-salvation sin, is no longer an issue. That's important for understanding eternal security. There are so many people in our world, so many believers, who have a problem with eternal security. They can't understand that God's gift means once saved, always saved. Because it never has to do with anything on our part. If you think you can do one thing to lose your salvation then somewhere, somehow, hidden away, maybe you've never really thought about it, but somewhere you're thinking that there's something you do to keep your salvation. If you think there's something you can do to lose it, then somehow you're thinking there's something you do to get it or keep it, and that's works. And if that's there, you may never have been saved to begin with if you think somehow it has to do with something you do or something you continue to do. So propitiation resolves the problems of the demands of God's righteousness and justice for all time 
and eternity. Now, the verse goes on. The verse goes on to say, He Himself is the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction for our sins. Second, uh, first person plural of the pronoun, of the first person pronoun. First person possessive, our sins. And the our here, as we have seen in the first person plural, refers primarily to John. It's an editorial we. It refers primarily to John, secondarily to his apostolic uh, partners. And then by application, we can see that it applies to us. That Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And then he says, and not for ours only. The way it's constructed is for emphasis. He is the propitiation for our sins. We're believers. Christ has been propitiated. But it's not just for our sins. It is also for those of the whole world. Also for those of the whole world. Now, what does he mean by the whole world? I want you to hold your place here and turn over to 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to look at a couple of verses here. Look at verse four for what verse um, five four for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. See that's showing a distinction between who we are and the world. We have to understand um, John making a distinction between that the world is not the elect. See, there are some people who come along and they read this and they think that the world is talking about the elect, only those who are saved. And we're going to have to address that whole doctrine in just a minute. The idea that the world refers to only the elect is totally contrary to John's use of the word world. Turn back. Now we've looked at verse chapter 5. Turn back to chapter 4. Chapter 4, he uses the world several times in an illustrative manner. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice the world is set apart as something distinct. It's not where the believer is. It is in opposition to the believer. Verse 2, But this you know, the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the Spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. The world is something outside of the realm of where the believer should be. So for John, world is not the world of the believer. Let's turn back to verse 2 of chapter 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So there is a juxtaposition here between the believer and the world. And he carries that all through the gospel. So we have to stop a minute and look at this whole principle of the doctrine of unlimited atonement. The doctrine of unlimited atonement. Now, as we look at this passage, let's get, before we get into the doctrine, I want to make one other point of exegesis. 
says here, He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for, for those of the whole world. If you are taking notes, you might want to draw a circle in your English text around that word for and connect those. They all translate the same Greek preposition, which in this case is the preposition peri. P-E-R-I. Now, normally what we find in constructs like this is the Greek preposition huper. This is a rough breathing mark usually transliterated with an H. H-U-P-E-R, huper. Now, huper is clearly the preposition of substitution. And in many places, I try to translate that, not just Christ died for our sins, but Christ died as a substitute for our sins, to bring out the, the, the thrust of that preposition. It emphasizes substitution. But peri can mean concerning sin, and it can also have the idea of, of a substitution and is virtually a synonym for huper. Bauer Arndt Gringrich, the standard lexicon for Greek, says that with certain verbs and nouns such as ask, pray, or prayer, and remember the context here is talking about uh, prayer, and the prayer of confession back in verse 9 and the whole function of that in this situation. He said, when, with certain verbs and nouns, such as ask, pray, prayer, peri introduces the person or thing in whose interest the petition is made. Thus, it takes the place of huper. When used with hamartia, which it is in this case, propitiation for our sins, sins is the Greek word hamartia, when used with hamartia, the word for, or peri, has the sense to take away, to atone for, and emphasizes substitution. Kittle in the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says, to some degree the distinction between peri and huper fades in the Hellenistic period. And a result is that peri with the genitive can be used in the sense of, on behalf of, or as a substitution for. And this is uh, particularly common in the epistles. So the thrust here is substitution. Substitution. He is a propitiation as a substitute for our sins and not as a substitute for ours only, but also as a substitute for the whole world. Now, I'm, going, I'm emphasizing substitution here because I want to teach you, make sure you understand a particularly important aspect of, of this doctrine. But before we get there, we have to cover a little background. So let's see point number one, definition. Point number one, definition of unlimited atonement. The judgment of Christ on the cross as a substitute for every sin committed in human history by every member of the human race. Notice, every sin, every member. The judgment of Christ on the cross is a substitute for every sin. It doesn't matter how horrible they were. It doesn't matter how wicked, how violent, how destructive. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, Adolf Eichmann or whether it's the Ayatollah Khomeini or Saddam Hussein or any other uh, person who has committed multiple mass murders or genocide in human history. Their sins were all actually 
and truly paid for by Christ on the cross. That's the doctrine of unlimited atonement. The judgment of Christ on the cross as a substitute for every sin committed in human history. That's why we go back to the earlier diagram where I said that there are at least three problems facing the unbeliever. First of all, sin, Adam's original sin, imputed sin, and his personal sin, and that's actually paid for. But just because the penalty is paid for doesn't mean they go to heaven because they still don't have eternal life and they still lack perfect righteousness. So, But sin is actually and truly paid for. This is the emphasis in unlimited atonement. The work of Christ made salvation, therefore, available to all, but did not actually assure the salvation of anyone. Only those who express faith alone in Christ alone are eternally saved. Why? Their sins are paid for, but they don't possess perfect righteousness and they don't possess uh, eternal life. Now, let's get a little background, a little historical background on this doctrine, and that comes from understanding the the conflicts between Calvinism and Arminianism. You see, there are a number of people who believe in something called limited atonement. They don't have horns. They're not demons. I have several close friends that believe in limited atonement, and we have quite engaging conversations over this and have over the years. Limited atonement, or sometimes it's called limited redemption, and it means that Christ's death was only for the elect. He did not die for the unbeliever. So if at the end of a person's life, if they don't trust Christ as their Savior, then they, Christ never died for them. He only dies for the elect. Now, this is part of a system called Calvinism. Now, Calvin, Jean Calvin or he's known to us, John Calvin, did not hold to this. This is the system that was developed by his successors, specifically by, um, by Biza, who systematized Calvin's theology after his death and was his successor to, to uh, the Reformed movement in Geneva, Switzerland in the uh, late 1500s. But what happened was to give, there was a breakdown in the system of, known as Calvinism. And in 1610, from about 1600 to 1610, there was a guy by the name of Jacob Arminius who taught theology at a, at, in, in uh, Holland. And he could not go along with extreme Calvinism. He thought there wasn't enough room there for, from the Calvinists for, for emphasis on individual volition and individual responsibility and freedom of choice in relationship to salvation. So he began to teach a theological system that emphasized uh, human responsibility and free will. Now, his followers took that to another... You know, what happens is that Calvin... I don't think Calvin and Arminius were that far apart, but their followers were polarized at, at different extremes. And in 1610... The followers of our, our Miss teacher, uh, Derek von Kornherd, so it really should be called Kornherdianism, but that's too difficult for most people. And in 1610, they set forth five points, and they were called remonstrance. 
they set forth five points of the of the remonstrance, and they emphasize the that every human being has the ability to live a perfect life. It really goes back to the old Pelagian. Pelagius was a heretic from the fifth century that was refuted by Augustine of Hippo. The total ability of man to live a good life and to to to, um, to please God by his works. Uh, that election was conditional, so they held to conditional election, and that election was conditioned on what man did, that Christ died for everyone, unlimited atonement. They believed that uh, grace was resistible, and that salvation was losable. They did not believe in eternal security. There are a lot of Pentecostals who are just full-blown Arminians today. There's some Baptists, I think maybe some free-will Baptists are uh, full-blown Arminians. Anybody who believes you can lose your salvation is a full-blown Arminian. In response to their five points, the Calvinists reacted with their five points that have come to be known through the acronym TULIP. T is for total depravity or total inability. The U is for unconditional election. The I is for irresistible grace, that the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit moves on, will automatically respond in faith. And then perseverance of the saints. Now, perseverance of the saints is really nothing more than lordship salvation. And I think lordship salvation is the, is the logically consistent result of Dordian Calvinism. That's what it's referred to. And I think it all begins because they define the, the T as total inability. Man can't do anything. So if man can't do anything, then God has to do everything for him, including giving him the gift of faith. Now, they always go to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And they think the it refers to the gift. But the it is a neuter pronoun, and pistis is a feminine noun, and a pronoun always has to agree in person, number, and gender with its antecedent. And if the antecedent is feminine and the pronoun is neuter, that's not agreement. Uh, the thing is, salvation is, is masculine there, and, and, and that doesn't agree either with the neuter pronoun. But in Greek, a neuter pronoun will, if you have a clause that it's referring to that has a masculine noun and feminine noun, then the, 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 the pronoun will be neuter in order to refer to the whole phrase. So the um, it, it is a gift of God. The it refers to salv- the whole phrase. Salvation by faith through grace. Or salvation by grace through faith. It is the gift of God. The whole salvation package by grace through faith is that gift. But they would say that faith is given... And so that makes the faith that saves a different order of faith than everyday faith. It's not the object of faith then that saves. It is faith itself that saves. It is a saving faith versus a non-saving faith. And we've spent hours, I think, discussing the problems with that. But this is where it comes from. Limited atonement is part of this system. It's very logical. I remember when I went to Dallas Seminary as a student in 1976... This was a hot issue on campus because one of the best-known scholars in the New Testament department who was widely respected had had started to teach limited atonement. 
And so it was an uproar on campus. And unlike many other faculty members at Dallas Seminary who have not agreed or started to vacillate on the doctrinal statement, this man, for which he always has my respect, said, look, even if we, I could somehow finesse the doctrinal statement, I know this isn't what Lewis Perry Chafer believed. I know this isn't what this seminary stands for, so I'm going to resign and retire from the faculty. And he did. He showed tremendous integrity there. But this is where the idea of limited atonement comes from historically. Now, let me give you another development. Later on in the 17th century, in the mid-1600s, you had a guy by the name of... of um, Moses Amiro. It's a Frenchman, taught down at the Theological Seminary in Saumur in France. And he, he rejected, or he accepted everything in Calvinism except limited atonement. And he offered a position called unlimited atonement, which is what I was taught in seminary, what a lot of people teach. But it's really hypothetical atonement. It's really hypothetical atonement. Christ, and the way it's usually defined, is Christ's death could... It is, it's uh, uh, efficacious. It's, it's uh, or, excuse me. The death of Christ is able to save everyone, but it is efficacious only for the believer. But see, it sounds pretty close, but it means that Christ, the substitution, isn't real. I remember sitting down with my good friend Randy Price, who is a five-point Calvinist. When we were students at Dallas Seminary, and Randy saying to me, well, how can it be a real substitution if they end up in hell? See, that's why I keep going back to this point that I was emphasizing here, is that this is what is not understood, is the nature of substitution. See, the, the Calvinists will say, well, if it's real substitution, then why do they end up in hell? Christ really died for them. Now, Amiro's solution was it's hypothetical. It's, it's, real, it's a real substitution only if they accept it. That's not what I'm saying. It's a real substitution because their sins are truly and actually paid for. John 3.18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he sinned? No. Because he has not believed. See, the sin's paid for. The issue isn't sin, it's faith in Christ. The issue isn't personal sin, it's faith in Christ. And this is what eventually happens, is that in Revelation 20, when we come to the great white throne judgment, everyone is evaluated for their works, not for their sins. And their works, as we saw in Isaiah 65, 6, are filthy rags. Not their unrighteousness, but their righteousness. So that when you come to, when the unbeliever comes to the great white throne judgment, all their, their good works are added up, and the conclusion is that it still isn't enough to, to meet the righteous standard of God. They don't have perfect righteousness. They might have lived a sinless life, but they were born a sinner because they had Adam's original sin imputed to them. So even if, hypothetically, they lived a sinless life, they still have a sin nature, and so they don't have perfect righteousness, and that's why they're condemned. Their sins were paid for, but they don't have perfect righteousness. And the only way to get perfect righteousness is by putting your faith alone in Christ alone. And at the instant of salvation, then we receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. So, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 emphasizes the reality of Christ's substitution. He himself bore our sins on his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
for by his sins you were healed. Romans 5.8 states, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. There's hooper plus the genitive there, which should be translated uh, as a substitute for us. 1 Corinthians 11.24, which we usually recite in the Lord's table, when he had given thanks, he broke it, that is, Lord Jesus Christ, and said, This is my body, which is for you, who pair plus the genitive, second person plural, which is given as a substitute for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, who pair plus the genitive, he is our substitute. He died in our place. It was a real substitution so that sin is not the issue for the believer anymore. That's why we don't run around making a big deal about people's sins. The sins are paid for. The issue now is whether or not you have faith alone in Christ alone. And in conclusion, there are several key passages in Scripture that clearly state that Christ died for all. Not the least of which being John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in Him... See, whosoever, not just the elect, but whosoever... Acts 10.43 states, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. See, the emphasis on, is on everyone. Anyone who might. It is a uh, subjunctive mood there. Anyone who might believe in him receives forgiveness of sin. It is open to all. 1 Timothy 2.6 states about Christ who gave himself as a ransom. That is referring to the redemption price. A ransom as a substitute for all. For all, not just for some, but a ransom as a substitute for all. 1 Timothy 4.10 For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is what? The Savior of all men, especially of believers. Notice, believers are a subcategory of all men. He died as a substitute for all, but it is especially believers that benefit from that. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died as a substitute for all, therefore all died. Jesus Christ actually died as a substitute for every believer. So the issue now isn't sin. The issue is whether or not you possess the life of God, eternal life, and the righteousness of God, which is perfect righteousness. And that comes at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant we put our faith alone in Christ alone, God imputes to us His perfect righteousness and His eternal life. He declares us just because we possess perfect righteousness, and then He imputes to us eternal life. All that happens simultaneously, instantaneously, and it is ours. We don't feel it, we don't experience anything, but it is nevertheless ours and it can never be lost. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word today, to understand these tremendous truths about our salvation, that you took care of every sin. Your provision of salvation was not partial. It was not incomplete. It was not just for a select few. It was for everybody. The sin for sins of every individual throughout all human history were actually paid for by Christ on the cross so that the issue is no longer sin. The issue is Jesus Christ. What do you think of Jesus Christ?
Scriptures make it clear that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone so that you can make that salvation yours right where you sit right now. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to bargain with God, promise a moral reformation. You don't need to walk an aisle, raise your hand, join a church, or do any other uh, act of human uh, ritual or, or worship in order to gain salvation. It is a free gift that is received simply by trusting in Christ alone as the one who died on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.